0: My name is uh, Nate. I get to be the pastor here at New City. Glad uh, to be with you in the final sermon in this series. And Daniel, I've enjoyed this series. I hope you have enjoyed it too. It's been really fun. We have a little bit more to go today. But before we jump into it, I want to uh, give you a couple updates on some important announcements you need to know about. One is uh, we took a big risk last year and saying, hey, let's launch a service in the middle of the week. It's the first service of the weekend. So Thursday night, I preached the message that I'm preaching today. I already preached on Thursday because it's the first service of our weekend. And we're rebranding Thursday night services, and we're going to call them Thursday night unplugged. Uh, It's going to be uh, a little bit more of a stripped down casual environment. Uh, but we're going to be emphasizing this kind of old value that New City had years ago called a safe place to ask questions. When I say old value, we still hold it, but we don't have a sign that says it anymore. Uh, in the old days, we had this sign when you first walked into the Bosky School, we started uh, New City, and you would see the sign It said a safe place to ask questions. It was kind of one of the things that we tried to communicate, that we, if you're a, somebody on a journey, you're questioning God, the things of faith, that this was one of those places that was safe to, to doubt, to ask questions, and discover. And you know, We were a portable church back then, and I I can't remember what happened, if it was the first time our church trailer was stolen, the second time it was stolen, you know, somewhere along the way, Albuquerque took it, and we never replaced it, and, and, uh, and so, but we, it was always been a value, so Thursday nights, here's what we're going to do that's different, and we're, uh, you know, always hip on trying to do something new and innovative. Uh, we're going to start having a question time at the end of the service on Thursday nights. And so we'll trim the worship time a little bit. It'll be the same uh, uh, basically 55-minute service that we have on Thursday nights. Uh, but at the very end, I'll uh, give some time for some right-then uh, feedback. And so if you're somebody who uh, you know has a lot of questions, and you'd like to be a part of that kind of service, or you, you have some friends that have a lot of questions, you think they might be want to be a part of that service, it'll be the, the first time I preach the message. We'll get a chance to have real live uh, interaction with that talk. Right then, with some questions, not a whole bunch, but some questions, and uh, and then you know, we can carry on the questions in the, in the lobby after that. But it's really cool. Other thing I want you to know is Vision Weekend is next weekend, so Thursday and Sunday uh, will be next week uh, casting some vision. Uh, it's big news, like really big news. And I, I was trying to press my mind to say, Has there ever been an announcement in the history of New City that's been as big as the one we're going to make next weekend? I, I don't think there is one, and so I would like for you to be here, and I'd like for you to. Prioritize being here. And if you already made plans for the weekend, cancel them. All right, be here. Uh, it's going to be a good weekend for you to be here. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to be left out. Okay, I'm going to, uh, all the unholy motives. You're going to fear of missing out. All right, you're going to miss out, and I'm not going to tell you. All right, if you do come. All right, so it's going to be great. So be here for that weekend. All right, now on to the text. Our Recapture the Wonder is our series. We're in the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, we've been saying Daniel is a guidebook for the Christian life in exile. And so what we're looking at is saying, what can we learn from Daniel that applies to our context here and now? Because we don't see ourselves uh, as Christians in this context as having settled. Uh, This is not our permanent home. We are sojourners. We're Exiles, we don't belong here. It's not our. This is this is not our ultimate hope. This place that we live, uh, but we live for another city, a, a better city, one that is, it, where Jesus is making everything new again. That's what we're living for. But we are living now in this here and now. And we live with a posture of exile. like Jeremiah twenty nine instructs: Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And what we've seen all throughout Daniel is, as Daniel and his boys have done this, they sought the welfare of the cities that they've been placed, sought the welfare of the governments that they've been placed under, Uh, they have uh, also prospered in that. And it's been really kind of interesting to see how they've worked out life of faith in exile. Now, today's text is about Daniel and the lion's den, but it's not about Daniel and the lion's den. What's interesting to me is I was reading one commentator this week, and he said, pay attention to what the, what the Scripture doesn't talk about. And when you read through Daniel 6, I encourage you to do it later, then read through Daniel 6. We'll read through most of it today. But as you read through it, uh, what you will not see is any commentary about the actual lion's den. Uh, there's nothing about the size of the lions, the number of the lions, the you know, how hungry they were, uh, the environment of the actual den itself. There's nothing there, but lots of pastors have filled in all the gaps for you over the years about what might be there. And I want to, I want to propose to you that Daniel 6 is less about Daniel and the lion's den and more about Daniel in the workplace. That the entire setup of the text is about Daniel and his work relationships. Uh, you'll see it in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set up over the kingdom 120 think governors when you hear said, satraps. So 120 governors to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel is one. And so there are the three high officials overseeing all the governors of the land. Daniel's one of those three to whom these governors were to give an account so that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and governors because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So the setup for Daniel 6 is Daniel's a really killer employee. who's doing awesome. He's rising in the ranks. He's soon to be in charge of the whole enchilada and some guys are going to throw him to the lions for it. Uh, and So there is a workplace dynamic that's being set up and that workplace dynamic is where the tension lies. So you might say Daniel 6 is about jealous coworkers throwing a fellow worker to the lions. That might be one way of putting it. It could be jealousy. It could be other things too. See, most of the drama in chapter 6 surrounds an employer's distress over a beloved and trusted employee. And that's an interesting thing. You read no emotive words about Daniel, fearing the lion's den, what he's thinking about as he contemplating the lion's den, none of that. In fact, all of the distress and all the emotive words are, are reserved for Darius, his boss, in fact, his boss is, as, as he's thinking about this really great employee who's done really great work being thrown to the lions, as he's contemplating that reality, he feels, the word here is, distressed. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. You see in verse 18, the king, during the whole den scenario, he spent the night fasting. No, no diversions, no entertainment was brought to him. He slept, had fled from him. He had a sleepless night. All of the the drama about the lion's den was reserved for Darius, his boss, not for Daniel in the lion's den. So that's giving us a sense that there's a big idea here that's not the lion's den. The big idea is something other than the lion's den. See, the writer in Daniel 6 is saying, don't miss the big idea. Don't miss it. And I think sometimes what happens is when we're reading uh, when we're reading a text, we can sometimes, our, the sexy things in the text can stick out to us, and then we just all we, we think everything revolves around that, but that's not, not what the text is revolving around. In fact, when you look at what the writer is doing in Daniel 6, he's, he's trying to, the, the writer is trying to say, this, this lion's den is not the main idea. Uh, your work matters is the main idea. The main idea is that Daniel did something unique in the workplace, it stood out. And there was drama because of it. And in the end, Darius is making a confession of faith. That's the, that's the drama of the text. See, our work is worship. Our work is our witness. These are five things I'm observing from the text this week. It's powered by prayer. It's how others prosper and it's how we prosper. These are kind of the five takeaways that I've observed in reading this text over and over and over again. The first is our work is worship. and We should know this, that the, the way that a Christian works should be a witness to the work of God. The way Paul says it in Philippians, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, there is a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And and so there's a manner of your work in the workplace that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus. See, for the Christian, there is no division between one's sacred life and secular life. It's not like you have a faith life that's private and a secular life that's public and those two things don't uh, ever uh, interact. For the Christian, they're, they're, not, they're, they're not distinct realities. Like you are, you are the same in your faith as you are in your work. That's still what you're called to be. And you'll see that that was true of Daniel as you keep reading in Daniel 6.4. Then the high officials, the satraps, sought to find ground to, uh, for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, what shall we find? We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. To put it another way, when Daniel's political opponents ran their opposition research, they could find nothing but a person of integrity. In fact, that's, that's all they could come up with. And so they ran their opposition research on Daniel and said, we got to take this guy down. He's rising in the ranks for a number of reasons that we, we can kind of speculate on, but the text doesn't give us real super clarity on it. But Daniel's integrity made him predictably good. He was predictably good. And his political opponents plotted to use his goodness against him. And what's interesting in this text also is there's no conversation about the plot, about how they plotted and how they came up with the alternative ideas. It's just right to business. They plotted against him, and they executed their plot. And that's all we read is the execution of their plot. Reading of verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So they figured, okay, Daniel's faithful. He's a man of integrity. He's not going to stop praying to his God. Let's set a trap for him around his God. And we'll, make a, we'll, we'll, we'll pitch to Darius, hey, you make a decree that nobody can pray to anybody, not even a God, except for you for 30 days. We know Daniel will violate that. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the, induction, and the injunction. So one of the takeaways here, and I think this is an important one for you and me to understand, that integrity can get you in trouble. Daniel's integrity is precisely the reason that he is in trouble. I think that we have a clue in verse 2 about what might be going on. See, Daniel was put in charge, along with a couple other guys, uh, of making sure the king suffered no loss. So in some way, his job was loss prevention in the organization, and he was really good at it. And so he was rising to number one in the organization because uh, he was really good at ensuring the king was not suffering loss. Now, I don't know why he might suffer loss. Maybe he's got a bunch of lazy governors who aren't doing the work they should be doing. Maybe they all had a little understood side hustle where they were pocketing some of the king's belongings before they passed it along to him. Daniel's integrity, though, kept him from participating in whatever was going on that was causing loss, and I think that might also be one of the reasons why he is a target of this particular uh, political sort of play. Uh, I think we should also just be prepared that if you're going to be a person of integrity, that we need to anticipate and prepare ourselves for trouble in the workplace. Uh, That if you're going to be somebody who's going to be somebody of integrity, it's going to stand up for the right thing, it's going to do the right thing, it's going to have a primacy of their faith above everything else, and there are going to be times where there's going to be rub for you. Jesus says, "In this world, you will have trouble." That's a promise. But take heart; this is also a promise. I've overcome the world. So anticipate there's going to be rub in your life. And this is important, by the way, to have this anticipation. Uh, my, one of my sons recently was going to a dance at school, and I said, hey, here's some things. Okay, you go to the dance. If this happens, or this happens, or this happens, or this happens, how are you going to respond? What's Decide now Like what you're going to do. I want you to have a good time. And I want you to be stressed out. But if, if this happens, or if this happens, what's the response? What are you going to do? How are you, you going to respond to that? What's the action plan? Because we've got to decide some things ahead of time. And when the values of an organization, or for Daniel right here, when the values of your, of your government violate the values of your faith, what will you do? How will you respond? When others around you lack integrity or they are living in such a way that's a direct violation to who you feel called to be as a Christian, how will you respond? Let's read Daniel's response, verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. And here's the, I think, just the most powerful line. Just as he had done before. In other words, he was a man of integrity. And he was, he had integrity even in his prayer life, and he wasn't going to be shaken. And we have to like lean into seasons of our own sort of history, American history, maybe world history at times, to see how Christians have responded to moments of history where uh, there was a, a conflict between our faith and uh, government or our faith and organizations. And, and there's lots of ways in which this, this happens in everyday scenarios. Uh, you could read about kind of this kind of friction from Martin Luther King Jr. There were moments in Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, storyline where, uh, where he felt called in terms of his faith. Uh, to do some things that were uh, acting in civil disobedience that were a direct violation to governmental norms. Uh, In uh, the letter from the Birmingham jail, which I think you should read at least once a year, Martin Luther King Jr. says this, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. Now, what is the difference between the two How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. And he says, there's a way for you to think about this. There are uh, moments where we have to act out in civil disobedience. And the question that this text is really raising is, when the values of an organization or your government Violate the values of your faith, what will you do? Will you be faithful? It just so happens, like this week, I, I was asked to pray for uh, somebody at New City who was in a place in the workplace where the, the values of the organization were a direct violation to personal held faith values. And those values had to be addressed. Like there was a, a moment where that, that, uh, that person had to address their employer and that they had to have a conversation about their employment, about what they, they would do or wouldn't do this thing that was unethical. I think we have to decide ahead of time how we're going to behave in these moments. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, also somebody who acted in civil dis- disobedience, I mean, uh, here's a guy who was in Nazi Germany and was ultimately h- hanged for his uh, opposition to Hitler, was giving a commencement address for uh, an a ordination service, uh, and in the ordination service, he says this, you have only one master now, but with this yes to God belongs just as clear a no your yes to God requires your no to all injustice, to all evil, to all lies, to all oppression and violation of the meek, of the weak and poor, to all ungodliness and to all mockery of what is holy. Your yes to God requires a no to everything that tries to interfere with your serving God alone. Even if that is your job, your possessions, your home, your honor in the world. Belief means, decision. One of the things that you need to know is that the integrity of our witness is inseparably joined to the integrity of our work. And when you read in Daniel, what you'll see is that Daniel had tremendous integrity in his work, but he also had a tremendous witness with those to whom he reported. Look at verse 13. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. In other words, we got you, Darius, sucker. Uh, Now you have to do something. Uh, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Why is this employer so passionate about this employee? Because he's really good. He's a really good employee doing really good work and he's worshiping God all along and he's witnessing to the glory of God. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, now, O king, that is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Like you can't change your mind on this, you're stuck. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. The king declared to Daniel, Commentators have talked about this phrase that the king declares to Daniel. Many commentators think that that Daniel and Darius are having a moment here, and Darius is in agreement with Daniel about his God. And he's saying, with you, Daniel, may may your God, the God whom you serve continually deliver you. You've obviously served your God with integrity. I am believing and hoping with you that you might be saved. In other words... Daniel, in his exceptional work, and the way he's worshiped God in his work, and the way he's done his work with excellence, has been a witness to his boss, to his king. Our work is our worship, and our work is also our witness. I want you to see something in the text. In Daniel 6.3, it says that Daniel had an excellent spirit. He had an excellent spirit, or he had a spirit of excellence. In other words, he did his work with excellence. It, it says in verse 3 that he had exceptional qualities. Uh, he had, was kind of a worker who had exceptional qualities. Now, your work is your witness. It is, the way you work is a witness to who God is and what He has done. I want to remind you of what Dorothy Sayer says. She says, the only Christian work is good work well done. There's not secular work and sacred work. There's Christian work, and Christian work is doing a good job. And Daniel was one of those people who did a good job. It's unfortunate that this happens at times. I was on, in a conversation recently with somebody who's an employer at New City, and they have a number of employees, and they said, you know what, some of my worst performing employees at my work are Christians. In other words, like, Christians are not a very good witness in my workplace. I think Christians, in the, in the way they work, in the quality of the work, in the way they're working for God, in the way they're working for the benefit of others, should be, raising questions. I think Christians ought to be living questionable lives. There ought to be something questionable about the way that you work, something that, that calls into question, the, the, the sort of why do you work with such quality? Why do you work with such goodness? Why do you work with, with such joy? Why, why do you always seem to be looking at the interests of others above your own interests in the workplace? What, what is it about you that you're doing the work that you're doing this way? 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason uh, for the hope that is in you. In other words, there ought to be something, a quality about you that's so grand that people are going, tell me more about you. There's something you there's something should be so great about the quality of your work that people are going, there's, tell, me, tell me more about you. Why are you working this way? And I don't mean to, well, I do mean to sting you with this statement. I, I do, I mean, I, I, I don't want to sting you too hard, but I, I don't want to be moralistic about this. But perhaps, you are not sharing your faith more because no one is asking you to. Like, perhaps, like, there's just nothing exceptional about the quality of your work. And there's nothing exceptional about the way that you work and your attitude and the in your, your convictions and your beliefs in the context of your job. First Peter 2:12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation that phrase, the day of visitation, is an interesting phrase. Uh, Wayne Grudem talks about this way. He says, Peter's exact phrase does not appear anywhere else in the Old Testament or New Testament, so it is unwise to assume that it's a technical phrase for judgment. Like, in other words, like when Christ returns. It is better to understand it simply to mean on a day when God visits, like when the Holy Spirit comes on you at belief. On this day of visitation, the unbelievers who are currently slandering Christians will glorify God. In other words, Peter's strategy for Christian witness in a non-Christian world is living a questionable life, being such a stellar employee, living for the glory of God and the good of others, doing work with excellence, knowing that you are doing a different kind of work, a work under the work. And Christians have always been uh, at their best, and their witness has always been the strongest when they've been living ethical and lives of integrity in the context of the workplace. Uh, Larry Hurtado, uh, is a book I read a couple years ago that was really meaningful to me, helped me to understand the Christian growth in the early centuries. He writes this, he says, The growth of Christianity in the first three centuries, the most crucial period, was largely by a combination of the power of persuasion, whether in preaching, intellectual argument, miracles, or exhibiting the power of Jesus' name. And this is what caught my attention. Simply the moral suasion of Christian behavior, including martyrdom. In other words, Christians live lives of integrity and it caught the world's attention. They said, tell me more. Tell me more. In the book, there are a number of ways in which he, are, he sort of catalogs these uh, sort of I- identifiers of Christianity. Uh, Tim Keller, in a lecture I attended in Chicago a couple years ago, uh, sort of collated them into five kind of key points. Uh, the word that uh, Hurtado uses, he said, Christians in the early centuries were trans-ethnic, He says, when you look at what happened in the early centuries, they were applying this idea that, uh, Paul talks about this in Ephesians, he says, the dividing walls of hostility had been fallen down, and God had created one new humanity. This idea that people of, of various races and tribes were brought together under one blood, the blood of Jesus, was a unique idea in Christianity. And so Christians were, were, were this like trans-ethnic community where people from all different tribes and ethnicities were coming together and worshiping, and that was clearly eye-catching and new. Uh, Christians cared for the poor uniquely uh, because one of, the, one of the reasons why Christians could care for the poor so, so, uh, so profoundly is because there was a belief in the resurrection. There's a belief that this life is not all there is. And so when people would flee cities that were, were facing plagues, Christians ran into cities care for the poor, care for the oppressed, care for the suffering, because they could risk it all because they'd already received it all through the, glory, the, the glorious work of Jesus. And so they knew that, that Christ had already lived the life they couldn't live and died the death they should have died, was buried in the grave, rose again, conquered death and sin. And so because of that, they could do bold and courageous things in caring for other people. Christians had a non-retaliatory ethic. You can go to the teaching of Jesus and read, and Jesus says, don't return reviling for reviling, but bless those who, per, who persecute you. Like, pray for those who are against you, who, who do evil against you. These are principles of the Bible. And so when everybody else in the world is retaliating against each other, you don't do that. You forgive. For, in fact, there's no limit to your forgiveness. You keep doing it. And you bless those who persecute you. you. You pray for your enemies. A commitment to marriage was unique for Christianity, particularly among men. Women were treated more like property, and and that that was changing and shifting under Christianity. And and, and men and women were committed together in marriage, and they had a holistically pro-life view. This this is when, when infanticide was the way of abortion in those days, in those early centuries, and so not only were Christians against infanticide, they would go and grab babies off the street, adopt them into their families. In fact, many writers have written about this, that one of the reasons that Christianity exploded in growth was because Christians were adopting babies in their families at such a high rate that they're raising these these all these people to become Christians and followers of Jesus, and the families were large and growing because they cared for children holistically. Now. Keller made a really interesting observation about these five qualities. He said, when you look at the first two, the trans-ethnic and caring for the poor, those kind of feel like more like leftist, liberal kinds of things that people tend to care about who are liberal. You look at the bottom two, like commitment to marriage and holistically plural life, those feel like kind of conservative issues that conservative people tend to talk about. Because that number three, that non-retaliatory ethic, it seems to belong to nobody (laughs) in our current (laughs) political context. I think he's right. The point here is this. Christians live questionable lives. So what good is God calling you to do in your work? Years ago, when we started New City, I read this book uh, called The Art of the Start. It was written by Guy Kawasaki. And it was not, he's not a Christian, but he's just talking about starting new organizations. And the first chapter of the book, he says, I, I "Just you should read the last chapter first, because the last chapter is the really most important thing. It's kind of a gimmick in writing books. But I, I did. I went to the last chapter. It was called The Art of Being Minch. Uh, mentioned the Yiddish word for like integrity. And I, I looked through the book and there were like three main points in that chapter. One is help lots of people. Another was do the right thing. The third was payback society. And I started adding to that the list of things that are true of me as a Christian, glorifying God with my work, loving my neighbor. And what I've discovered is that there, your work has a purpose beneath the purpose. So I don't know what the purpose of your work is, like what it is, what the job, the actual job is that you do. But there's a whole nother job underneath the job that you're doing. And the job that's underneath the job that you're doing is is what you're doing for your real boss, who is God in heaven. It's a job that you're really doing as you're witnessing and sharing the the goodness of Christ with your coworkers and those who are are around you. And I want you to see the integrity of Daniel's work was a witness to Darius. And, And it's what caused him to worship our Savior God. Listen to the words of King Darius. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all uh, my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, And his dominion shall be to the end. He is the living God. It's not like the idols. He's the living God. He delivers and he rescues. He's a savior God. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion's den. And here you see King Darius making a confession of faith because of the work of Daniel. So our work is worship and our work is our witness, and our work is powered by prayer. I believe that Daniel could face these political pressures at work because his prayer life was strong. And what caught my attention in verse 10, and it should catch yours too, that he prayed as he had done previously. Now, he's praying. It's a kind of an interesting passage. First Kings, when Solomon sort of dedicates the temple, he goes, by the way, when you guys blow this up later, here's what I want you to do uh, And when you get invaded. And, you know, I want you to pray for compassion on God, from your captors. I want you to pray for compassion on God's people. I want you to pray for people to be brought back to Jerusalem. I want you to repent of your sins. And so he's probably doing those things as he's kneeling, all, you know, being obedient to the tax and being obedient to the word. But I have a feeling in this moment, probably, Daniel's like, oh, and by the way, Lord, as I'm Praying. Uh, this lion's <laughs> lion thing, this lion's did things kind of troubling, uh, you know, like some favor in that. And here's what I think I think the lion's mouths were shut because Daniel opened his mouth to pray. And I, I feel convicted by this because I know that my tendency at work is just to try harder, to keep applying more effort as if I could do the things that only God can do. See, Daniel was saved, and this is his confession, by the power of God and the integrity of his work, both those things. That's how he sees it. You see it in verse 20. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, King Darius cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lion's den? Then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent His angel and shut the lion's mouth, power of God, and, they have, found, uh, and they, have found, uh, they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before Him and also before you, O King, I have done no harm. Integrity. And I want to challenge you here with just a simple phrase. Work without prayer is work without power. Now you can go, you can you can keep going through your work week this week and just do what you've always been doing and try to hustle more. But I think you're missing out. I, I want to challenge you the words of Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr. this time, Martin Luther the reformer. I have so much to do today that I'm gonna set apart more time than usual to pray. They're just you're you are a limited being with limited capacity, but you serve a God who is a limitless God with limitless capacity, shame on us for not praying more and asking for his leadership. Our work is worship. Our work is our witness. Our work is powered by prayer. And our work is how others prosper. Look at verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad because his great and awesome employee was not killed in lion's den and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no harm was found on him because he had trusted his God. I want you to to see that Daniel was an exceptional Employee, and it was the reason why the king had grown so much affection for him. You see, in verse two, he was the, one of the key people in keeping the king from experiencing loss in the organization. You see, in verse three, that he had an excellent spirit about him. But where did he get that excellent spirit and this great capacity to serve his his boss with such, you know, with, with such effectiveness? Well, he got that because God gifted him to do it. And I want you to know something, that everything that you have is a gift from God. Everything you have is a gift from God. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them, this is Daniel and, his, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. In other words, God gifted Daniel for this purpose. And he's stewarding the gifts that God gave him well. I want you to know something. You may have done a lot with what you have been given, but you cannot deny that it is a gift. You might have done a lot with the unique mind that you've been given that sees the world the unique way your mind sees it, but you did not do anything to earn that mind. It was given to you as a gift. You may have a unique talent that you've exploited to make a lot of money in your life. Good for you. I'm glad for you, but you did not do anything to receive that talent. That was a gift from God. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It was given to you. You may not have done a lot with the unique home that you were brought brought into the world in. Like you might have had a loving mom and a loving father who put you in in, in the right environments to succeed in life, but that's a gift. You didn't earn it. It's a gift from God. We believe, we're tempted as Americans to believe the lie that everything I have, I've earned. It's just not true. Everything you have, you haven't earned. There are many things that you have that you did nothing to earn. They were given to you as a gift. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. He gives good gifts. And so we are not owners, we are stewards, even, that's true, even of our gifts. You do not own your gifts, you steward your gift. And Daniel is stewarding that gift well. I'll remind you of Paul in Ephesians 2 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like he's created you to be a good worker. And he's gifted you to be a good worker uniquely in this world for the unique purpose he's called you to. So we're to be actively seeking the common good for our workplace, for our neighborhood, for our families, and for our city. This is the original sort of command we keep going back to, to seek the welfare of the city. That's what we'll be doing, leveraging our gifts in such a way that we live out Jeremiah 29, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you. And you have been sent to your workplace. You have been sent to your neighborhood. You've been sent to this city to leverage the gifts that God has given you for the benefit of others and for His glory. And so our work is our worship. Our work is our witness. Our work is powered by prayer. Our work is how uh, others prosper. And our work is also how we prosper. And the Daniel, I mean, in the Jeremiah passage, we learned that, uh, that when you seek the welfare of the city, that it's in the city's welfare, you find your welfare. And what you keep seeing is that truth being played out in Daniel. Daniel six twenty-eight, the very last verse of our passage today. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus and the Persian. But I want to just help you to understand what prosperity means for the Christian. See, for the Christian, prosperity is not found in property, it's found in people. The Apostle Paul steers us this direction when he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. In other words, every athlete does what he needs to do to compete well. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, a, a perishable crown, something that doesn't last forever. But we do it so to receive what's imperishable. That's humanity. That's human souls. It's the impact we make on people. That prospering in this world is, has everything to do for the Christian is what impact we're having on the lives of people. See, Daniel 6 is, is not about Daniel and the Lions, and it's more about Daniel in the workplace. It's more about Daniel's witness in the workplace. The impact he had on people in the workplace, in particular his boss. See, Daniel is in his secular job witnessed, and his boss was converted. And his boss is saying things like, For he is a living God. You see that in verse 26. He's saying things like, He delivers, he rescues, he's a savior. Like, this is unbelievable stuff, and Daniel's work is a witness, and people are responding, and good is happening. So let me just challenge you here for a second, okay? Maybe God has not called you to move across the world. Maybe He's called you across the hall at work. Maybe God hasn't called you to Africa, but He's called you to be a light to Susan in accounting. Maybe God hasn't called you to Asia, but he's called you to the loading dock. Maybe, maybe God hasn't called you to Brazil, but Tom, who keeps bugging you about that TPS report, yeah, you hate that guy, Tom. Maybe God's calling you to Tom. I feel bad for Tom. <laughs> Teacher Pothofer Bonho- said this. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Let me just personalize it. Your work in the workplace should cause your co-workers to question their disbelief in God. There ought to be something so unique about the way that you work that people around you are going... I need to hear more about that. I need to hear more about what's going on with you. Before it turns into a moralistic message, I do believe that that kind of work is born out of prayer. And you can't can't do that kind of work separate from leaning completely and solely into God and His strength. So may may you have that. May you have that kind of witness in the workplace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, 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 there are so many different um, workplace dynamics. You know, I don't know, you know, maybe somebody's in the room right now and they've got coworkers wanting to throw them in the lion's den and they're wrestling with that reality. And maybe there's somebody here who's in a place where the, the values of the organization are in direct conflict with their values as a Christian. And boy, there's so many variety of ways in which this sermon could be impacting people. And maybe there's just this, just this conviction to be a witness Uh, my prayer, Father, is that through your Holy Spirit, you bridge all the gaps. As we sing songs to your glory, as we elevate you as preeminent in our minds, uh, that you would also begin to counsel our souls and speak to us uniquely about how we can apply these truths to our own work environments. Help us to honor you with our work and to be a witness to you and to your greatness. Uh, You are really worthy, and uh, I appreciate that. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we that we pray.